0: one Of the pastors here at Mill City, I see a few new faces. We're so glad that you're here. We've been in a conversation over these last few weeks since Easter, talking about this this reality of Jesus as our leader. So we spent the time all the way through Lent, leading up to Easter, talking about Jesus as our Savior. But one of the very common ways we refer to Jesus in our life is as our Lord and Savior, or Leader, Lord means leader. Our leader and Savior. So we were taking this deep dive into Jesus as Savior over Lent, and now post Easter, we're taking a deep dive into what it means for Jesus to be our leader. And so you, what you find is that there's all these different images given to us about what it means for Jesus to be our leader. And so we've actually got these great uh, images up here that you can see that were designed by our friend Ben from Ally Design, who does all of our design work for us. And each of these represents a different image of the type of leader that Jesus is according to scripture. So we have servant, rabbi, shepherd, prophet, judge, high priest, king. So far we've done servant and shepherd. And today I want to talk about Jesus as prophet. Jesus as prophet. Okay, so I'm going to give you an a, a actual definition of Jesus as prophet. But what we've seen as we've gone through the, all of these so far is that Jesus kind of disrupts what we might understand leadership looks like in the world compared to the leaders we have around us. So today when we talk about prophet, I'm defining it as a person regarded as an inspired teacher and proclaimer of the will and truth of God. Okay, so Jesus, being God in the flesh, is a person regarded as inspired to teach and to proclaim the truth and the will of God. And so we see Jesus in his life and ministry and currently in our lives now as a prophet, one who speaks the truth and the will of God into our lives. So that's what we're going to talk about today as we dig further into this. But what we've seen through each of these examples so far is that Jesus turns on its head in a lot of ways what we see in the world as what it means to be a successful leader. And so that today will be no exception. Let's pray before we dig into God's word together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this opportunity to be here in this public school. We thank you for Sheridan, God. We pray that you would continue to bless this school God, would your presence make a difference here in this building, not just now as we're worshiping you, but as the kids come this week, we pray that your presence would make a difference, that they would be kids who are coming in tomorrow ready to learn, that you would equip and empower the teachers and the faculty and the staff, and that you would bless the the parents and guardians of all these kids. God, we're so grateful for their hospitality to allow us to be here to worship you. And God, I pray that as we talk about you as a truth teller in our lives, as a challenger, as a prophet in our lives, that you would be speaking to each one of us. That we would be people who are different when we leave today than when we came in because of one reason, and that's that you are alive and active and moving amongst us. We thank you for the promise of your presence, Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I've noticed something about myself. Um, I'm in my mid-30s now, so you're starting to figure out the things that are just, this is who I am, okay? Weird patterns in your life. One of the things now for me is that um, the only time I really ever read magazines is when I'm on an airplane. So, I don't know. Like, I, I don't get any subscription to magazines. So, when I'm on a plane, it's like, oh, I get a chance, you know, it doesn't happen that often, but I get a chance to read a magazine. And I go into those, those huge racks of magazines in the, in the airport stores. If you haven't been on a plane before, they really want you to buy a lot of stuff before you get on a plane, I think because there's stuff for sale all the way to the plane. And so there's these huge racks of magazines, and I look at all these magazines, and I look at the people next to me picking out the magazines, and I think what we're doing is trying to pick out, like, the life that we wish that we had, okay? So, like, someone standing behind, like, by the, like, fitness magazine, and there's just, like, a dude on there with, like, an eight-pack, and he's, like, grabbing the magazine, and I'm looking at him like, yeah, probably not, but... You know, and then someone else is getting, like, the Better Home and Gardens magazine. And, I mean, you don't know, but chances are their house does not look anything like that in any stretch. But it's, like, their life that they want to have, you know. And then the golf magazine person and whatever and whatever. So I just kind of like to imagine that we're all there picking out the life we wish we had and then taking it on the plane and reading it like it's us. So for me, those magazines, there's different ones, but my favorite ones are ones like Entrepreneur Magazine and Fast Company Magazine, okay? because nobody will ever describe a church as a fast company. And uh, so it's like this alternate life that I get to like what if I what if I was leading this fast company and it would be so interesting and so I like to read about all, the, they've got all these lists of like the, the top 50 most interesting apps for you on your phone to make you more efficient and none of them make you more efficient, they just make you spend time looking at apps on your phone. Stuff like that. For whatever reason, I like to read these magazines. I like to read fast company and these different things. and. Part of it is because I like to learn about the cutting edge realities of leadership theory. So don't worry, I do sometimes read things that have more research approaches like the Harvard Business Review or something like that than like magazines. But I like to say, what are people talking about when it comes to leadership? What are the people who are trying to sell stuff saying about what it means to be a good leader? What are the people who are saying, let's be innovative so that we can be at the top of the sales market, what are they saying about innovation? I think it's really interesting, to be completely honest. Um, not just as a way of daydreaming about what else I could be doing with my life, but I think it's very interesting. And so when you look at these realities, you know what, they're, what these people are doing is they're trying to make money, right? But I do think there's some interesting perspectives on how the world sees leadership. A few weeks ago when I was talking about Jesus' as servant leader, I was talking about how it's interesting that a lot of the leadership theories of the day, Jesus just completely turns upside down. Uh, Being a leader who is also a servant. And in so many ways that the things that we say, what makes you have influence, what makes you powerful, and all of these things, Jesus takes the opposite approach in so many ways. Interestingly enough, when I was reading in fast company, I actually saw something that reminded me of Jesus. So before I was going, oh, Jesus, he turns all those popular theories on its head. But I heard about a leadership concept, and I thought, that actually sounds a lot like Jesus in fast company. Huh, who would have thought? And so I was reading this, and it was this concept called disruptive leadership. Disruptive leadership. Has anybody heard of this concept? Disruptive leadership. So put, the, put the, um, the definition of disruption. To cause something to be unable to continue in the normal way, to interrupt the normal progress or activity of something. So this is the definition that they had in Fast Company. And they were talking about how fast things are happening in culture how things are changing so quickly. And the result of that change is that companies are needing to move quicker and quicker in order to survive, in order to keep up. So they were suggesting in Fast Company that it's the leaders, the C-suites, the CEOs, and all the the directors who are the ones who have to make sure that the company is disrupted enough to keep up, Okay. So here's a quote from the article. If their leaders of these companies don't shake the organizations from their slumber within, they'll struggle to compete in the wider world. Corporate graveyards, yikes, corporate graveyards are littered with examples of companies that woke up to smell the coffee a little bit too late. Blockbuster, Blackberry, and Kodak, to name a few. <laughs> so you get what they're saying, right? Remember Blockbuster? Who remembers Blockbuster? You guys, some of you, these junior hires are like, what? You remember that? And you go in there, and you'd you'd see the, the, and and then you wanted to make sure that behind it, behind the actual cover of the VHS, if it wasn't there, then you couldn't rent it. And Mighty Ducks 2 is always gone. And that was my favorite. And I really wanted to watch Mighty Ducks 2. I mean, it had a really big impact on my life, Mighty Ducks 1 and 2, because they were girl hockey players, and I wanted to be a hockey player. Anyway, and I was upset. And then it was equally upsetting when you got home, and people did not rewind, because that was not kind. And the people from Blockbuster were focusing too much on, you know, Be Kind, Rewind, to to fail to realize that people were not going to keep coming to these stores to look behind the VHS covers to see if Mighty Ducks 2 was still available to rent, because now, obviously, it can be streamed. So you, you see where they're going with this. These companies failed because they needed to be disrupted for their own sake, and according to Fast Company, they would say the leaders of these companies are held responsible for that. At the end of the day, disruptive leadership, uh, this concept, is all about growing and keeping your company viable, right? So that people can make more money. That's the motivation behind all those things. And I have to remember that when I'm reading these magazines, right? The motivation behind all of this is the bottom line and is whether or not people are going to get paid and if they're going to get a profit. Because to them, there is a lot at stake. Perhaps Jesus realizes, though, that the kingdom of God, the realities of the kingdom of God is that there's more at stake when it comes to the kingdom of God than there is at stake when it comes to Silicon Valley and Wall Street. Perhaps Jesus, as what I would suggest the best leader that has ever walked this earth and currently leads us, recognized that there's more at stake when it comes to the kingdom of God than when it comes to whether or not some of these businesses will get profit. And I think that, what we see in the Gospels is that Jesus is a disruptive leader. Jesus is a disruptive leader, never for the sake of just shaking things up, never just to watch people flounder, not at all. It's always for the sake of the kingdom of God, and it's always motivated by what I would call the deepest motivation that exists, and that is love. I think that this disruptive act of leadership, this way, this dis- disruptive aspect of Jesus' leadership, Is the way we see Jesus as a prophet, his prophetic aspect of his leadership is this disruptive part of his leadership, speaking out truth and challenge in different ways. It's it's where we hear some of these phrases. If you think about Jesus' life and some of the things that he's become famous for saying, things like "You've heard it said, hate your enemies. I say, love your enemies and pray for them." If you want to be a leader, you have to be a servant. If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to save your life, you have to lose it. You need to pick up your cross and carry it. I mean, think about what that would have meant to somebody back then. Pick up your torture device and carry it. This is the kind of disruptive stuff that Jesus says all the time, doesn't he? This is the way in which Jesus walks into the scene and disrupts the status quo almost everywhere that he goes. And this, I would say, is examples of his prophetic leadership. His leadership as a prophet. One of my favorite passages that displays the prophet aspect of Jesus' leadership is Luke 4, verses 14 through 30. That's what we're gonna look at today. So if you have a Bible, you can pull that out. Or if you want to pull it up on your phone, I um, have it up on the screen as well. This is a this is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So if you look back at, at, at the book of Luke, you see Jesus, the description of Jesus being born and his early life and his uh, baptism and his his temptations in the wilderness. And this is right at the beginning of his ministry. What we think was the beginning of the first about three years of his ministry that was really significant. And so we're going to start, once again, Luke 4, starting in verse 14. And we're going to kind of just go along and I'll explain some things as we go. So Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. So this story sounds kind of nice at the beginning, doesn't it? Everyone's praising him. Everyone's saying, this guy is something. And it's important that we recognize this. Because Jesus it continues on and it says that he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So he went home. He went to his hometown. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Okay, so a synagogue is kind of like a combination between maybe what we would think of as like a church or a community room. Okay, So people would just be hanging out there sometimes and it would be social, sometimes religious, but it's, not, it's, it's kind of a, a all, all things can happen in this space uh, for mostly Jewish men, unless there were women or servants who were coming in bringing food or something like that. So this is a synagogue, a group of people, we don't know how many, mostly men, people who Jesus had grown up with his whole life who are in this room and he walks in as was his custom, it says. So he's done this many times. And today... The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So I've said this before. That moment is kind of like a modern-day mic drop, okay? It's not normal that you would say... It's was normal that someone would read the scroll. It's not normal that you would say, Boom, that's about me. That's not normal. <laughs> that's a big deal. And so people would have thought that was a very unusual thing that Jesus did. And so at this moment... Uh, you could end the story right here and you could say, wow, this is really great. He says all these things and people, I'll, I'll continue on just a little bit further. He says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Okay, so once again, everybody's praising him and now everyone's amazed with him. Things are going well for him as a leader, don't you think? People are thinking that he's something special. But that question, isn't this Joseph's son? That's the kind of amazement like, oh, we never thought anyone special was coming from Nazareth. Certainly not someone who's suggesting that they're the Messiah by what he just said. So there's already some questions in the room. And so you could end the story there and say, wow, Jesus just did a mic drop moment in his hometown. Boom. But the story actually continues on. Jesus, at this point in the story, I think, deliberately chooses disruption. He deliberately chooses disruption when he didn't have to. And we see his prophetic leadership come out. verse 23, Jesus said to them, "'Surely you will quote this proverb to me, "'Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, "'Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. "'Truly I tell you,' he continued, "'no prophet is accepted in his hometown.'" we need to stop right here and ask an important question. What about what Jesus said made those people so furious? That's an important question. This is one of those uh, seminary for everybody questions. And when you're reading the Bible and you say see something like that, that you read that and you think, why did that make everybody so ticked off? We need to look at that. Okay, so let's talk about it for a second. The first thing he says is this phrase, physician, heal yourself. This would have been a common everyday proverb. So not like a proverb from the Bible. It would be something that people in that culture would have said a lot. Physician, heal yourself. Um, and then the, the phrase, the stories about Elijah and Elisha, very common. So what he's saying to these men in the room is something that they would know about right away, very much contextualized to who they are. Uh, the phrase, physician, heal yourself, is something that people would say to, to, as a kind of a catchphrase to say, prove that you're the real deal. Prove that you're actually somebody that can, can be a healer. And this idea of wanting proof In what somebody is able to do. Okay? So Jesus is confronting them and saying that they are not going to have enough faith to trust in who he is unless they see miracles, unless they see signs. He goes on to talk about the miracles that he did in Capernaum. Why would they be upset that he did miracles already in Capernaum and didn't do them in Nazareth yet? One main reason would be that the people of Capernaum, many of them were not Jewish. And so that means that Jesus, some of the first places he went was not to his own kind, but to people who were different than him, to do miracles and healings amongst them. And they were upset about that because they would say in this time that Jesus had chosen to go to those who were not at the center of their understanding of the religious hierarchy, where they saw themselves as Jewish men, as the people who should be at the center of that, not to mention the people who had grown up with him people who he had grown up amongst, who they thought that they knew Jesus best. Same thing with the story about Elijah and Elisha. These are two prophets uh, during the time in the Old Testament. And uh, the people of God, of people of Israel, were struggling with famine. There were people who had needs. And Elijah and Elisha were sent to places where there were more people who were not Jewish, who were not people of Israel. And God was not showing favoritism to the Jews and to the people that they would expect that they should be shown favoritism by God. Do you see where there's this tension that he's riling them up? So there's already resistance in the room because people are always going, already going, isn't this Joseph's son, the tradesman? What, who's this guy? So they're already wondering this. And when Jesus brings up these two stories, any resistance that was in the room was provoked intentionally. On purpose. Jesus disrupted on purpose. Jesus is trying to prepare them for the reality that He came for the whole world, not just the people of Israel. And here's the thing they should know that already because they. Many of those, those Jewish men had memorized what was called the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And in Genesis, it says so clearly that God was going to bless Abraham and the people of Israel for one reason, and that was that they would be a blessing to all nations, to all people. They knew that reality that Jesus was pointing out. Being confronted with something that you already know deep in your heart is often very painful and difficult, isn't it? When someone points out something that you know in the core of who you are, they're right. It can be really difficult, and this is what Jesus has done. These are people who had gotten themselves in the mentality that nobody should be blessed unless they have all their needs met and then some. And their needs didn't feel like they were always met. They're people who had convinced themselves that God had some sort of hierarchy of who was the most important in the the world, in the kingdom, and that they should be at the top probably because of things that they had done to earn it. And Jesus disrupts that way of thinking, and it ticks them off. It ticks them off in a big way, because listen to how the story ends. In verse 29, they got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. All right, can you imagine this? These are the people who Jesus had grown up with, these men. They're so mad that he called them out in this way that they are going to throw him off a cliff. Can you even imagine this? And then he does what they were kind of asking for, in a way, and he does a miracle, and he walks right through the crowd and they're not able to lay hands on him. He does a miracle in a way that I'm sure is not the kind of miracle they were hoping for. I think we see some very clear aspects of Jesus' prophetic leadership in this passage. I just want to talk about those really quick and uh, Phil will put them up on the screen. So in verse 14 through 15, you see that Jesus spoke challenge in the midst of everyday life. The synagogue was not something unusual. People would be in and out of there all the time. There wasn't some sort of special moment where he got everybody together and said, I'm about to say something important. He spoke right into their everyday life, into the spaces that they would already be in. Verses 18 through 21, Jesus' disruption is about making wrong things right. When he reads from Isaiah 61, that's what it's all about. It's all about the kingdom of God coming and making wrong things right, about provision and pardon and healing and freedom and favor. All of these things in Isaiah 61, Jesus is saying that his very presence is ushering in, making wrong things right. That's why Jesus would disrupt the status quo, for the sake of making the wrong things right. Verses 22 through 27 is when Jesus tells these two stories, right? And I think what we see here is that Jesus will disrupt in order to expose what is in someone's heart. Jesus is trying to expose what's in the heart of those men, isn't he? He's trying to say, you're sitting there going, isn't this Joseph's son? But what's really going on inside of you is that you believe that you are better than everybody around you and that you deserve special treatment. And that you need to see special miracles, and it's all about you. And he's revealing that selfishness and that self focus in their heart by what he says, that self centeredness. And then finally, in verses 28 through 30, Jesus' prophetic truth transcends the anger that the people have at being challenged. Jesus does not retaliate, he could have. You know, he had the power to do that. If he wanted to, he could send all of them off the cliff. But of course he didn't do that. We know enough about Jesus to say, of course Jesus wouldn't do that. But they were about to do it to him. And he walks away instead of retaliating. I want to pause here for just a moment because I think when we look at Jesus' prophetic leadership and then we think about, if you've been with us these last couple of weeks, talking about Jesus as a good shepherd or as a servant, they almost seem like they don't go together. Jesus in this prophetic, riling people up and figuring out what's at the heart And then this idea over here of a good shepherd that leads you by quiet waters. And there's actually a really core um, way of understanding this that at Mill City we've talked about a lot. So if you're newer to Mill City, this might be new to you. But all of our covenant members, we talk about the Jesus leadership in our lives as having two important components. The first one is Jesus' invitation to us or support. And then the second one is Jesus' challenge. Jesus invites us to follow him and to be his friend and not his servant, to be in relationship with him. That's so supportive and amazing, but Jesus also challenges us and speaks hard things out of love into our lives. And so we have this way of looking at it, um, if you can put this up here, of invitation and challenge. If you were to put them on this graph, okay? Some of you, this is new to you, but I'm going to go through it quick. So, If if it's confusing to you, invitation can also be substituted for support, supportive. So if you have low challenge and low invitation in an environment with a leadership, like if Jesus was low challenge and low invitation, people would be bored. It would just be boring. There wouldn't be a lot going on. If you had high challenge but low invitation, think about how that would feel, you'd be stressed out. So challenging but not supportive, it would be really stressful. If you had a lot of support and invitation, but not very much challenge, that would feel kind of cozy. It'd feel good, but kind of cozy. Finally, we see Jesus with both high invitation and high challenge in his leadership, which leads to people feeling empowered. Empowered to step into kingdom things and step into kingdom realities because of the way that Jesus leads us in our life. Now, you might look at this, and when you're thinking about your relationship with God right now, you might put yourself in one of these spaces. And I don't know what that is for you. Um, Your life might feel stressful. Your life might feel cozy. I don't know. But when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, a good question would be, where am I at with this right now? And I think for a lot of us, when we get to that cozy place, we want to stay there because life is hard. And so we don't always want to listen to God's voice because it might mean that God's going to say something challenging to us. And so if you're one of those people and you're thinking, man, I do want to be empowered, the hard reality is, is you can't usually just skip from cozy to empowered. When that challenge has to go up, up goes the stress a little bit. And it, you kind of dip down into that. Has anybody felt that before when they've begun to listen to God and they've stepped into that? I see some nods. You, you, you dip down into that. We call that the valley of the shadow of death. But last week we talked about how Jesus as a good shepherd leads us gently through the valleys of the shadow of death where we don't have to fear evil because he's comforting us because God's hope is that we live as empowered people no matter what we're facing in our lives you see both Jesus invitation and challenge throughout the gospels don't you you see the invitation in the servant leader who washes the disciples' feet you see the invitation in the good shepherd who leads you beside quiet waters and restores your soul and you see the challenge in the prophet And we're going to talk about a few other aspects of Jesus leadership that you will see as challenge or as invitation, probably. But it's both of those things that help us thrive as empowered disciples of Jesus. And Jesus knows this, and out of love for us, even though he would love for us to just be cozy and have a nice spiritual back rub all the time. He knows that's not what's best for us. And so he challenges us. And so when we lead other people or when we um, parent our children, we... Most of us lean towards invitation or challenge a little bit. Maybe you know that about yourself. And in some relationships, it's really hard to, I would call it, calibrate invitation and challenge. Some of you may be thinking about some of the teams you lead and you just don't know how to calibrate the support and challenge for that one team member. It's really hard. Jesus is the only leader that perfectly calibrates invitation and challenge. But to be able to live into that empowered space... To be able to live into that empowered space, we have to be willing to listen to God's voice. And some of you might be here saying, you know, I feel like I haven't heard God's voice in a long time. And something that I want to suggest is, I wonder if we would hear God's voice more if God's voice is what we really wanted to hear. Because we know that what God has to say to us might be disruptive. It might be encouraging and challenging too, but it might be disruptive, won't it? To the way we want to do it. I know in my life, I want to be in control. I don't like the idea of having to give over the say to anyone, even God sometimes. Are we willing to listen to what God wants to say to us? Because Jesus' challenge in our life is motivated by one thing, and that is his love for us, for the sake of the kingdom of God and his glory. So I'm going to just tell you really briefly, here's an example of how this is in my life right now, okay? So this is nothing crazy, it's not like a huge disruption in my life, but I want to, that's kind of how it is normally. Listening to God speak in your life, it's sometimes about huge things and sometimes it's about everyday things. And so for me, one of the things that God's been putting on my heart lately is kind of pushing me to pay attention to my plans for this summer, okay? So we're about to hit May, I'm thinking about this next month and then summer, that season changes a lot for me. I don't know if it does for you. And I just felt like God was saying, just put down everything that you're doing and give it to me. And so I did that. And God made it pretty clear in a time when I was, actually not when I wrote it down, but later I was driving in the car and I felt like God said, that class you said you'd teach, I know it's only five weeks long, but you gotta let it go. And my thought was, okay God, that sounds nice. I'll think about it. And then I thought about it. But you guys, it's really hard because it's not that big of a deal, right? It's just a class, but it's really hard to say no. Anyone else have trouble saying no? Okay. And then when you already said yes, and then you have to say no, it's the worst. And so I just didn't totally commit, right? And so then last Sunday, I'm sitting here somewhere over here, And Pastor JD is preaching about how the good shepherd leads us into green pastures and how we have to move so that the pastures stay green and that the sheep will just keep eating down into the weeds and the dirt and it's poisonous and it's bad for them. And in that moment, I just knew God was speaking to me and saying, you have to let it go. I'm not going to give you all the reasons why, but I need you to let go of that experience. I really love those students. They teach me so much. I love the students. And God's like, it's not about that. I need you to trust me. And I don't know how to explain it any other way. It wasn't like I audibly heard that, except that I really felt that in my heart. And the next day, I called the program director, and I asked her if she would find another professor. And by the end of last week, the professor that they ended up picking, he's so awesome, I want to take my own class from him. All right? And I think about this, and I think about how God was speaking to me in just these everyday spaces of my life, just like we saw in this story. God was revealing what was going on in my heart. What's going on in my heart when I feel like I can't say no? The pride of, oh, I'm the only one that can do this. I'm the best person to do this. It's not even true. What about the control that I want to have? I want to control my program director's opinion of me. I don't want her to think that I'm somebody who she can't count on. I want to control that aspect of my life. God is revealing these things in my heart. And this seems like a kind of simple story, right? I mean, it's not like my... Probably my whole life's not going to be changed because of those five weeks of not teaching that class. But you never know, right, what God might want to do if you're willing to give Him, listen to him and give him that time in this case. And how about this idea? Maybe it's not about me. Hmm. Maybe God doesn't want me to teach that class because there's something else going on that has to do with kingdom ramifications and it's not about pastor staff this time. Maybe it's about a student in that class who's going to connect with with Pastor Sean, who's going to teach that class, and it's going to be something really significant, I don't know. I'm not going to get to know. We don't get to know every aspect of the big picture. That's what makes Jesus the prophet, not us. He sees the big picture. He knows your life. He knows your heart, your inmost reality, but he also knows the big picture of the kingdom of God. And we have to trust that. So we don't get to know all the whys and all the whats and all the hows, but we get to decide decide if we're going to choose to trust the voice of the good shepherd, who is also a good prophet. A prophet who speaks into our lives with words that, yes, often disrupt. But it's never disruption just for the sake of shaking up your life. That is not who God is. It's for the sake of the kingdom of God in our midst and the work of the Holy Spirit that we can't even see. And out of a deep love that God has for us. So based on this passage, I, I see three questions that we can ask ourselves in regards to Jesus as a prophetic leader in our lives. The first one is, how might Jesus be speaking to you in the midst of your everyday life? In this story, Jesus is meeting with these others in a place that they would always be, and he spoke prophetic truth into their life in that moment. I believe that God's trying to get our attention all the time, but we know we live in a world where that's not clear all the time, is it? There are things that hinder us from hearing God completely. Uh, God's word tells us that we can expect that to happen. But we can't let that cause us to give up on trying to listen to what God is saying. I often say that listening to God is like a muscle that we have to develop in our lives. At first it feels really hard, but it gets easier because that muscle is getting stronger. I often hear people say things like, oh man, I was at this worship service and God just really showed up. Listen, God is always there. It's whether or not we show up to him. We have to decide. Am I going to show up to God in this worship service? Okay. How about am I going to show up to what God might be saying to me in my home, in my workplace, in my neighborhood, with my kids, with my spouse, with my roommates? Am I going to show up to what God might be trying to say to us? Not out of guilt or shame, but because we know that it's God's love in which he wants to speak to us. So what would that look like for you? Are we paying attention? Second question. What wrong things does Jesus want to make right? What wrong things does Jesus want to make right? In that story, Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, talking about a lot of wrong things in the world that he came to make right, and he's still in the process of doing that. He also wanted to to take a wrong thing and make it right in the hearts of those Jewish men, to say, you aren't the center of God's universe, actually. God is, and God is here to redeem all people who will follow and believe in his name. This is a wrong thing that Jesus was making right. What are some wrong things in our lives that God wants to make right? What are some wrong things that Jesus wants to make right? Out of love for us. And I know just because it's from God's love, it doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it easy to follow those difficult things. But if we can trust that Jesus wants to challenge us in order that we can be empowered disciples, that feels really good. It's hard, but it feels good to feel empowered, like you know you're stepping into it. We can begin to take steps towards what God is saying, even if it's hard because God is leading us. It's about God's action first and we get to join in. So here's some examples. What what might it be for you that God's put on your heart lately? Just think about that right now. Perhaps there's somebody or someone that God's prompted you to just let go of that relationship or that thing. It's not been good for you. Maybe there's a justice issue in the world that you just feel prompted to join in in some way, but something's holding you back. Maybe God's whispering to you that it's time to stop complaining about that person who feels like an enemy and start praying for them. Maybe God has a neighbor or a coworker that just keeps coming up in your experience. You see them all the time and you know that God put them there. And you know that it's time. It's time to to step into a spiritual conversation. But you're like, when I get the script from God, so I know exactly what to say, then I'll do it. Not till then. But God's put that person on your heart to share with them what made the good news good to you. Maybe God's inviting you to cut something out of your life, to take, take some time, like the example that I gave. Maybe there's something God's wanting you to add to your life so that it's more full spiritually or emotionally. Maybe God has been prompting you for a while to take a risk. Maybe it's a new relationship, dating relationship or something like that. Maybe God's prompting you to take a risk and start stepping towards that new career. And you know he's prompting you, but there's fear there and that's okay. But God's speaking to you about it. I want to suggest that everybody here, there's something that we know or at least think. Maybe. You're thinking, maybe this is God saying something to me. And there's some of you who have been so bold, just courageously following after what God has said to you in your life. I love hearing those stories. I know that's where some of you are at. But for some of us, I know that there are things that kind of hold us back from responding. I know that's what happens for me in my life. What are those things for you? What are your kind of immediate defense mechanisms when God challenges you, when Jesus challenges you? For me, you heard in my story, mine is to not totally commit. (laughs) That's my defense mechanism. Sure, that sounds good. God, I'll think about it. For a while, until it's too late. Whoops. What's the defense mechanism for you? Maybe if you can't be 100% sure that it's God, you're not doing it. Turns out you can't be 100% sure it's God. That's the mystery of God and faith and all those things. Maybe some of you are truly afraid to listen to God's voice because you've heard some sort of theology. Like, if you listen to God, God's going to tell you the very last thing you'd ever want to do, ever. Have you heard that theology? Like God's going to make you do the worst thing that you could possibly imagine? That's not a thing. Okay, like that's not in here. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know where the people got that. But that is not how it goes. God's not trying to mess with your life just to be funny. God's not trying to move you around like little Lego toys and mess with who you are. God is a good shepherd, shepherd and a good prophet. This is who God is. God leads you out of love, not for just the sake of seeing you squirm. Right? What is it for you that holds you back? Let me give you one warning. Some of you know I'm a student of psychology. I love reading about psychology. That's another one of those magazines that I'll get, Armchair, theology, uh, armchair Psychology, whoops. Um, but this is, in, in psychology, there's an, a thing called cognitive dissonance. Have You heard of cognitive dissonance? Raise your hand. Cognitive dissonance, cognitive dissonance is when you have something in your head you think you're supposed to be about or supposed to do or supposed to value but you don't behave in the way that you believe. It causes cognitive dissonance. Like if someone were to just play all the, a bunch of keys on the piano, it'd sound horrible, right? Cognitive dissonance. And human beings can only handle so much cognitive dissonance until they just, it, it causes you to freak out. So you kind of have two options, right? You either can try to have your behaviors match the thing that you feel you're supposed to do. So if God's giving you truth and challenging you, you either start stepping towards that and the dissonance starts to subside, or you have to push it away and decide that it doesn't matter. Those are really like the two options that you have, because staying in the cognitive dissonance isn't really an option. And the warning that I have for you is that what we know from psychology is that if you choose the second option and you shut it out and you don't think about it and you try to just push it away, after a while you don't hear it anymore. You actually have an inability to really reason with the thing that you felt was true for you. And so when it comes to our relationship with God and God is speaking into our lives and encouraging us in some way, after a while we can become numb to what God is saying to us. That's how our brains work. I think that's what scripture is talking about when it's multiple times referred to as our hearts getting hard the hardening of our hearts it says in hebrews 3:15 today if you hear god's voice do not let your heart be hardened a hardened heart causes us to be in a place where we can't hear god's voice and then a byproduct of a hardened heart is that we're in a place where we can't receive god's love which brings us to our third final question what might jesus want to expose in our hearts What might Jesus want to expose in our hearts? You saw Jesus' prophetic leadership expose the hearts of those people who were there with him in the synagogue. Jesus is not afraid of what's going on in your heart, even if you are. Jesus has seen hearts that are more cold and more hard than yours. And he can melt a heart of stone if you let him. If you are feeling any of these emotions towards God, Jesus' love transcends it, just like you saw in the story. His love transcends your anger, your apathy, your frustration, your fight-or-flight mentality, all of those things, your fear. If you're angry with God, let God expose that. Be real with him. Lament is a real option. Are you scared or confused or apathetic? Let Jesus into that. Jesus challenges us in our lives for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of the kingdom of God coming in our midst. There is a lot at stake and that's the reason why Jesus would disrupt our lives out of love. The challenge is always motivated by his reckless love for us and the world that he came to save. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and we're going to take communion together as a way to respond to this love of Jesus that invites us but also challenges us. Perhaps this is a moment this morning for you just to commit again to Jesus, that you desire to hear his prophetic voice in your life. You really do want to hear it. And if you're someone who has that, that thought, I think my, my heart is kind of hardened right now. Perhaps this can just be a time for you to stay in your seat just a little bit longer. And it takes a while sometimes for your heart to thaw out, <laughs> to become soft again, but God can do it if you let him. So I want to encourage you, if that's where you're at, just stay in your seat and a little bit longer if you need to, to talk to God about that. But on the night before Jesus died, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. And he took the cup and as he poured it out, this is, my, this is my blood which will be shed, which will be poured out for you. And he encouraged his friends, whenever you do this, remember me. Remember what I have done for you. Jesus' death and resurrection and conquering death is what makes it possible for us to have, to hear from God, to be able to be in relationship, has reconciled us to God. This is what we celebrate as we come today. So if you, you don't have to be a member of Mill City. If you are somebody who's seeking after Jesus in your life or a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to participate in communion. We'll just form two lines here that'll then break into two more lines. Take the bread and dip it into the cup. And there'll be some people on the, on the walls who'll be willing to pray for you about anything we'd love to pray for you. So when you're ready, please come and partake and then let someone pray for you. We receive this blessing that I want to pray over you this morning. May you experience God's love poured out on you. That fills you up so that it will overflow onto the lives of the people around you. May God open up your eyes to see the ways he's inviting you and challenging you to join around in what he's doing in the world. May God open up your ears so that you can hear God's voice. And may God give you the courage to respond, no matter what the cost. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.